Welcome to the Innovation Game, a podcast by Potter Clarkson, the full-service IP law firm. My name's Rich Wells, um, I'm a patent attorney, and today I'm joined by Dave Holt, who's an IP solicitor. How's everything going, Dave? Pretty good, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's been a nice nice start to the week, nice busy environment in the office, uh, a few takeaway pizzas ordered in, I think, to incentivize people to arrive. So, you know, definitely can get on board with that as a uh, as a motivation technique. But um, yeah. No, that's good. Good to hear. Yeah, certainly. If, if that's the, the the new normal, then I'm I'm on all on board with with pizza at lunchtime. So today um, the topic for our conversation is research agreements and, and particularly research agreements between companies and academic institutions, um, something that we often see quite a lot in our practice and they can be quite interesting, largely due to the, the parties having different motivations and goals and Dave is a real expert in this, it's a big part of, of, of what he does, so he's going to certainly have some useful nuggets of, uh, of information about this topic. So just to kick off Dave, you know, to start with, how and why um, do these agreements arise? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, actually. I think there's probably a couple of ways that these establish. Um, some, I think, are from people leaving university, moving into the commercial field. Um, so drug development, working with pharmaceutical companies, working with chemical companies. And when they have a new concept or idea, they'll recall a leading professor in the field that they studied with, or sometimes you know, they'll search out leading experts who are available to provide research support if they don't already have that in-house. Um, universities have always been a great place to collect together, quite quite narrow in some cases, but in other cases, broad specialisms within, within niche areas. And you'll often find some of the, the leading minds in the world in an academic environment, and they've spent their last 20, 30, and not to insult anyone else, 40 years focusing on the development in that field. So if you want somebody to take you a bit further with your with your development, then sometimes university is the right place to go. Um, the other is more to do with the incentivizations of, of universities now, for example, the University of Manchester, um, other universities are available, um, who spin out into commercial enterprises and they find a way of balancing um, using their research staff in a, in a proto-commercial way. So whether they have other investors into that spin-out business or they want other collaborators in a joint venture, you'll find there's relationships between academic institutions and, and commercial organisations. And as you said, what they're each looking to get out of it can can vary. So, uh, Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I think one thing that strikes me about what you've said, is particularly about the way in which a lot of academic institutions are are becoming very commercially minded is that there's you know wherever there's the commercial side of these things without sound sounding too mercenary you know there's 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 always money exchanging hands and the hope that what they're going to be developing i'm sure you know they'd want it to change the world but there's the expectation that there'd be some sort of financial return and i imagine you know whenever there is money to be had that's when these agreements are, are really valuable just when things don't necessarily go the way in which either party might have initially hoped, if that makes sense. Is that something that you've kind of, you, you've sort of noticed almost down the line? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one, actually, because um, obviously the traditional university model is your sort of publication recognition, um, making sure that your organisation is, is rated uh, as, a, as a top research institution. 
Um, but obviously funding plays a huge part of that. There's obviously, you know, the, the student loan models, I won't talk about that. Um, yeah. But, you know, being a solicitor, I don't mind being called mercenary because it's pretty standard. Um, <laughs> but fundamentally, there is always going to be a value exchange. Yeah. And universities are coming up with ways of working that allow them to pursue these research goals and be involved in, in you know, some of the more cutting edge um, technologies and developments that, that arise. And I think they're wise to the fact that you can get so far on public funding and it's great when innovation is funded and pushed forward by, by a government or, or an organisation. But a lot of the underpinning principles of the patent system and the IP system more generally is to stimulate innovation by allowing people to protect their innovations post generation, share them with the public, but allow them to monetize it effectively to recoup their research and development costs. Now, until unless we move into a utopian model where everything is funded centrally, which you know has its merits as well, I'm sure, but until we move to that model, universities are adapting to make sure that their projects are front and center and they are getting some um, appropriate compensation to allow them to continue to pay the best professors in, in the country and in many cases the world to continue to work with them much in a way any other business would. So yeah, it's it's about the value proposition for both and there's, there's definitely commercial interest on both sides as well as, as well as research. Yeah, I suppose it's not it's not necessarily about winners and losers, is it, in, in an agreement? It's the primary purpose is just to make sure that the way in which either well both party want wants the the um, collaboration to proceed is is written down just so there's no uncertainty. It's not about you know trickery or anything, is it? It, it or at least it shouldn't be. It's it's just more about having everything having everything down and agreed when everyone's still getting on quite well. Um, so kind of with that in mind, it's really. I guess the way in which these agreements approach from the beginning is it's, it is a negotiation, is and and just to kind of put all this in context, what in your experience is is generally a um, timeline for for this type of negotiation, which I guess will ultimately result in 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 an agreement. You know, from the point at which, say, a company has identified a particular academic that they're interested in in working with. You know, what. What steps should should you know both parties take to um, to make sure that they can proceed in a way that protects their own interest and 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 hopefully gets to a a kind of mutually beneficial outcome? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as I say, so the nice the nice thing about these agreements, at least when you start with them, is that they are they're fundamentally built on collaboration. Both both parties have have got an end goal in mind. Um, what we'd always advise, particularly when you're in the field of innovation, is that confidentiality is preserved. It's the forgotten IP rights, confidentiality and trade secrets. You can wax yeah. on for ages about that, you know, particularly in the patent field as well. You know, you're very familiar with all of this. Um, but from my perspective, a lot of the benefits of a, of a mutual non-disclosure agreement is to allow both parties the comfort to speak freely and honestly about their innovation motivations, how they want to achieve the output, how they want to subsequently monetize it, talk about, you know, their input costs, output costs, you know, talking about the demands on their time. And you want to do that all in a safe bubble where nobody's going to go away and say, well, you know, this university was going to charge me X hundred pounds an hour. Can you beat that? Mm -hmm. Likewise, the university going, this company was only willing to put in 
X thousand pounds don't collaborate with them in the future. So if you do have any fallings out at that point, everything's in that safe confidentiality bubble. So how because, early should you get that in place? I guess I suppose that's the million dollar question. So I think if we're talking about a hypothetical scenario where you're approaching a lead professor, for yeah. example, um, it's always possible to talk in generalities about opportunities in collaboration. That professor will perfectly well know what they're capable of doing, and they may well know a little bit about what your business is and what you're interested in doing. You can take care around those initial conversations. You can say, in broad terms, we'd like to collaborate in relation to a project. It's obviously something that you would be specialist in. Um, we generally think that timelines might be a couple of years. You know, you can give these broad indications without giving anything away. Mm. I think if you were moving into anything which is fundamentally the the meat of the of the actual innovation or anything where you think I wouldn't really want anyone else to know this, you know, it notwithstanding the fact that I trust this individual that I'm speaking to, or you know, yeah. I believe they're you know a very, very upstanding professional. If there's something that you think actually this has value, if it were to fall into the hands of a competitor or anyone else who's interested, that's where you want to put it in place. Now, generally, again, don't surprise people with these things. Don't just drop an NDA on the desk and go, by the way, if you want to carry on chatting, this is how we do it. Preface the conversation and say, look, I'll give you know these some initial details. If you're interested in working together, I suggest we sit down, have a sensible conversation entirely confidential we'll you know we'll get something in place to make sure we're both comfortable with that and then we'll have a full explanatory discussion so we can talk to you about what we'd like to do and and how we'd like to do it the key thing as well is to get everyone who's going to be involved in these conversations directly or indirectly signed up to the same agreement so your professor might be a consultant professor he may exist as a separate entity he may be independently contracted with the university he may be independently contracted with you if your initial conversations with uh, with just that person, fine, have a one-to-one -one NDA. But if he needs to go back and speak to somebody in his department to establish feasibility, funding requirements, et cetera, et cetera, then loop the university into the non-disclosure agreement too. So do a little bit of pre-planning in terms of who's going to be involved in these chats before you get started with them would be a, would be a sensible move. Now that makes sense. So we've got our non-disclosure agreement in place, the NDA is sitting there, people are happy. Where do we go from here? So we generally suggest what you do is uh, heads of terms. Um, you know, once you've got this bubble that you can you can have a discussion in, you start laying out your fundamentals. And um, as I'm sure many people will will support, there's a lot that goes into a legal agreement, which is legalese. It is framework. It is extremely important, but you want to start out with the guiding principles of your commercial arrangement, your innovation arrangement, and plotting effectively a timeline of how you want this agreement to run start to finish. And when we work on these, we make sure that we're really closely aligned and having plenty of conversations with our client about what they want out of it at the end. Because frankly, if you're putting together a project plan for you know research and innovation type trials or, or similar activities, for all that, you know, absolutely, I can work with with somebody like yourself who knows how these work. The client is always going to be the closest to this and will fundamentally know what they want to do, when they want to do it and how they want it to come out. Sometimes that'll be with conversations with the, with the academic as well who say, well, don't don't run this particular assay. I recommend you run another one. So you build that project plan together. Um, once you've got that, think about 
well, think about the commercials, think about your value propositions, um, you know, who's getting paid what, who is funding what, who will be receiving a consultancy rate for their time, or are people just going to say, well, we will, we will contribute our time now with a view to getting value at the back end of this transaction, which could be in, in various forms. Um, who owns the intellectual property? Where is it going to be held? What are all of you bringing to the table in terms of existing intellectual property? Yeah, are you working with an academic who has a couple of patents in their own names in a particular in a particular methodology that you definitely want to use? If they're bringing that to the table, what will you be able to do with that technology? Is it purely for the research stage of it, or do you need it for the commercial outcome at the end? Try and think these things through and, and think them all the way through to the timeline of commercialization, if that's where you're looking to go to. You know, don't just plan for the immediate next six months or the next thing that comes along. Think across the whole timeline and plan your head to terms on that basis. Okay, so it's almost like I know, a wish list makes it sound a bit too dreamy, but it's kind of, uh, I guess it's aligning the practicalities and the motivations all in a series of headlines. Would, would that be a fair summary? Yeah. Or Yeah, I think so. And, you know, if you have if you have a wish list, well, you know, absolutely start with that because you can press that over to the, to the other people in the negotiation and say, well, this, you know, this is the ideal, this is where we want to get to. You know, how do we get there? Are you are you willing to operate on that basis? And then you can start a, a to and fro, but you're working, as you say, around a, a limited headline list because you could start off and, you know, again, solicitors maybe considered to be people who like to spend a bit of time on these things up front, but personally, I'd rather not write an entire IP ownership clause give it to somebody else and go, oh, well, we haven't discussed this. Actually, none of this is acceptable and we, we need to start this again. If you can start with fundamental principles, you build up from there rather than deconstructing something that somebody's prepared and is almost presenting over to the other side as a, as a sort of, well, this is how we see it going. Because the amount of time you need to rework that is just disproportionate. It's not very helpful for it. So it kind of creates, would you say, almost a stepwise way to get through the negotiation to sort of save time and money just to allow you to get get the 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 skeleton of what you want to achieve in place exactly and i think when you're when you're working collaboratively like this and I, you know that's this is not true for all areas of licensing because fundamentally in for example a pure commercial context you may be willing to license out your technology on one basis and one basis only which is yours but that's within your gift to do this is an entirely different collaborative arrangement where you need input from both parties and you want to be on an equal footing because that's hopefully how you're going to work in going forward. So well, like it's, say, it's, 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 a, controls. it's a collaboration, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, it, 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 if one party wins, they both win, hopefully. Um, yeah. And so we've got our heads of terms in place and, and I guess now we get on onto the agreement itself and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit more detail later, but how do the heads of terms develop into the agreement itself? You know, what's the, what's the link between these two, these two, I suppose, separate documents, separate projects within this negotiation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we advise on these things, we try and do it from a strategic point of view. We try and do it on the basis of working with the clients for an entire project not just discrete pieces of advice, you know, pick up, drop, come back. You know, we'd rather have a, an ongoing conversation and relationship with our clients in terms of developing this from start to finish. And that's, you know, entirely at the client's discretion. But 
where we get to the heads of terms phase, what we will generally do is establish the type of agreement we're working with. Um, so is it, you know, a contracted research type agreement? Is it more of a, a co-development agreement where you'll each be working with third parties or the same third party? How does that need to look? Once we have that concept in mind, we will usually, if we're, we're assisting with our project all the way through, provide the headlines in, in sort of very straightforward terms that we then want the parties to discuss and agree a position under. And, you know, from a very selfish point of view, we will generally structure that in accordance with the way we would normally prepare an appropriate agreement. So we would have headlines like, just give you know, a few, um, service qualities and standards. If you have one party providing services to the other, you would have confidentiality terms, you'd have IP terms, you would have terms related to commercial activities. You would have project plans, timelines and milestones, which again is generally very client led because they know the project's best. But these types of things, you know, termination, what happens if, if termination is something that happens? For whatever reason, you know, people may agree to go their own way or, you know, the trial doesn't work out as you plan. Where, where are your exit stages and how are you going to manage that? What is the appropriate thing to do? You know, you pay for the services provided, in fact, to date at the time you end it. Well, that's, that's fair. You know, there's been input and, and therefore you should be paid for said input can get a little bit more complicated about IP ownership when you've only got part of the deliverables you were hoping for. You know, deliverables capital D would be what output do you want? You know, yeah. and that's something you need to carefully define. And you put all of this structure in place and and you then let the parties discuss around it and give them a bit of a nudge in a particular direction if there's something you think, well, maybe you want to cover this off as well. But that framework is generally quite a good discussion point. And that is then what we will take and draft into the agreement. Obviously, there'll be a few nuances and tweaks. You know, generally you'll you'll have to change the wording from a conversational set of bullet points into something which which has operative legal effect. But on the whole, you try and take that skeleton and and, and add add body to it, so that both parties get what they're expecting, plus boilerplate terms. Uh, but <laughs> And a lot of schedules quite often, but it won't be a surprise to them. There will be clear cross references between the heads of terms and the and the fundamental agreement, which they will which they'll get at the end of that first drafting process. So I think one thing that I'm really getting from this conversation is, you know, the role role of the IP solicitor in 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 building the framework of discussion because especially at the beginning of project when everyone's getting on quite well, you wouldn't necessarily foresee or you know want to imagine the things that could go wrong. And it's about getting all these things down in the agreement and, and resolutions decided on up front just so, so, so you know where you go in various scenarios. And all this makes me think of, well, surely if those things aren't in place, those provisions aren't in place, then there could be lots of, you know, issues with an agreement even if it's well negotiated if certain things aren't considered in your experience what are these these pitfalls that mm. that the you know, companies academics whoever is the party in these, these agreements should be looking out for to be included within some sort of research agreement if they proceed in that way yeah absolutely and you know we are hired to be cynics 
most of the time <laughs> solicitors and you know we're, we're often considered to be people who you know I, I try to be more a solutions person than a problems person but i'm not going to miss identifying risks or, or problems up front if it means it's going to cause you know save you pain in the long term yeah um and, and i think the three you know there's always depending on what the parties care about there can always be some slightly more odd um issues that arise but commonly speaking what we're talking about with these types of arrangements confidentiality as i mentioned before is is, is an absolutely fundamental part of this um where you have an institution that is is almost entirely research and publication motivated you need to have a sensible set of controls on how something is published when it is published and make sure that there's preservation of confidentiality until the point that the party who intends to commercialize or otherwise protect its, its intellectual property rights has been able to do so um i have you know this is a point i negotiate a lot actually and those institutions academic institutions who have spin out companies will generally understand the concept sometimes you can need to explain it a little bit more and explain to those more publication focused institutions that you're not trying to prevent them from getting the appropriate recognition for their input and and content that they've provided and you know innovative support they've provided you know there will be recognition as inventors as appropriate there will be the opportunities to publish these things but in order to make sure that the value of the innovation is preserved for you know, the following 20 years, for example, the company involved will need to have input on timelines of publications, appropriate redactions, and making sure that the inventive concept is not disclosed prior to its appropriate protection, if, if so desired, with registered IP rights. I suppose that's the issue, isn't it? It's um, you know, taking the, the, the patent as a form of IP as an example, if that confidentiality is broken or something goes wrong and it's published prior to the patent application having been filed at the patent office, even if that publication comes from the individuals that will ultimately be inventors, in the majority of jurisdictions in the world, that could that public disclosure could be used by a patent office by a third party to to say, well, what is described in your patent application lacks novelty, isn't inventive, so you're not allowed to get a granted patent. So it can it can really scupper the chance of getting IP, which can underpin the value of 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 most, you know, often the value of the innovation, and it's yeah. largely lost on a on a, a clumsiness and a, a technicality rather than anything that's you know that 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 sort of that, that that has any sort of sense of justice behind it. And I I yeah. think because of that that's key really and i think it's one thing that i like about that that point as well is it really it really brings out the tension and sometimes and the the, the difference in motivation between say an academic institution which has the, the the pressure to publish the academics often do and the pressures from um often kind of private companies which is to to secure the value you know for say other investors and, and just to help get their product to market yeah, exactly. And and I think the other the other sort of arm to this as well is um, knowing who you're working with. Mm. Now, for example, you're working with an academic who is preeminent in a very specific field. Now, 
it's not necessarily reasonable to try and impose restrictions on that academic which would prevent independent activity working with a another company who may or may not be a competitor so you have to be very careful as to how you draw your confidentiality boundaries whether you have a period of time within which you know you're going to be filing a, a pattern for example within which you don't want that academic to work with a described list of competitors or in a in a very specific subset of his field or her field or working with a particular antibody for example that you know that you know will be a fundamental underpinning part of your invention preventing them from working in that very specific way allows you to protect your own interests um, and that's not necessarily an unreasonable balance but again this is something that's really worth discussing up front because trying to impose these things in retrospect can be very difficult because if you're only talking about this six, seven months down the line when it's all done and everyone's, you know, everyone's finished their work, turning around and saying, oh, but by the way, we don't want you to continue your work in this area with any other private enterprises for at least 12 months. Which comes as a, you know, quite a nasty surprise to somebody if they're intending to go off and, and pick up another consultancy arrangement thereafter. So very important to, to cover all this off um, early because actually you can then draft some pretty sensible restrictions you know, in your confidentiality bubble that exists under your NDA, you can say, well, we think this is what the invention is going to be. And therefore, we don't want you to work with this pure inventive concept for a period of time. And you're doing this at the outset. There's the financial potential for both yourself and the consultant and potentially the university. And you get all this covered off early on and you come to your sensible compromise position at the start. Or you can't compromise and you, you walk away from it at that point you're not taking a risk of something coming out or something being done which could scupper your innovation after you've already got three quarters of the way down the line. That makes that makes sense and uh, just from your experience I think often in academia there can be quite big personalities. Do you sometimes see this as a particularly thorny issue um, you know I guess if you're being a bit of a cynic and sort of talking directly about what a company might be trying to achieve here it's almost telling an academic what they can't do which I, I imagine doesn't always go down particularly well have you found that to be challenging? I think it depends on the level of sophistication is probably the wrong word but the level of experience that that academic has with working with private enterprise I think the first couple of com conversations are quite difficult because if you're used to working within a field where everything is shared between you and your colleagues, everything is shared between the people that you are in an institution with, there are there are no walls, there are no blockers, and and your pursuit is of, of you know developmental um, steps of, of knowledge, and you're you're intended just to push things forward constantly and to let everyone know what you found. Um, so changing that concept, I think, in the first instance, is quite difficult. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, in terms of um, academics, I've worked with a number of US academics who have been doing this type of thing for tens of years and doing very well with it. But because they've run this particular gauntlet before, if somebody says to them, yeah, we just need you to, to not work in this field until we've, we've published this, they'll say, well, that's fine. I'm happy to agree to that, provided there's an appropriate incentive for me to do so because you need my experience and you know you're, you're going to be providing funding so happy to do this but I would you know if this product goes to market or once a once the patent's filed I'd like a I'd like an additional payment on top there's 
there's always ways to negotiate around this and it depends entirely how mercenary the individuals involved are. But I think like you were saying earlier, um, having these conversations up front is certainly a lot easier than having conversations after the fact when you know work's been done people have gone away with their different understanding of how these relationships can pan out and and then then trying to get an agreement at that point got to be a lot more difficult than having this honest conversation up front um yeah so i think yeah that makes sense on confidentiality but um you know moving on from this uh, are there other pitfalls that you you often come across yeah i find funding is a very interesting one um i think we spoke at the beginning a little bit about um, you know, universities being public funded entities. There are commonly grants that can be obtained by universities or individual academics or even, you know, commercial bodies actually, you know, it can come in both sides here. Um, knowing where the funding is coming from, who's paying for what, how are you splitting it, you know, that can be down to the granularity of expenses, travel, food, um, lab supplies is always one you potentially don't want to miss out because it could be quite expensive. Yes. You know, lab time, who's dedicating that? Is it going to be at the university? Is it going to be a contract research organization? Are you going to be doing it somewhere else? You know, get all of these things sorted out and, and you know, work out. If it's going to be 50-50 all the way through, well, fine, cut it 50-50 all the way through. But there will be things that a university can offer, usually, that add value, but they can basically provide that at cost. For example, lab time, they may be able to provide an entire summer of lab time basically at cost, and that would then be a contribution that they're granting to, to the entire process. So get all of this broken down. Um, the other thing is, is sort of funding agreements, which yeah, it's nice to have a substantial amount of funding being passed down to a couple of entities who are going to take a concept and develop it going forward. The important thing from our point of view is to establish whether there's any strings attached, because this may put constraints on, for example, what publications need to be made, who needs to be reported to, so there's confidentiality issues there, we've spoken about this before, or alternatively this could have an impact on IP ownership, additional licenses and expectations from the funding body as to what is going to happen with the IP that's generated out of this project. There are a number of EU projects that I've, I've sort of looked at funding arrangements for who have an expectation of a grant of a license for, for that particular body or related bodies to use that technology in a particular field, basically gratis, in exchange for the substantial provision of funding. Now, if that's not talked about in advance and you draft an agreement where, and we'll get onto the IP ownership in a minute, where the IP ownership is a particular way, and unfortunately you've taken £750,000 or euros of funding, and that says, well, yes, but the water sector gets the free right to use this technology within the entirety of the UK. Mm. You've lost an entire monetization stream. You've also lost a little bit of control of the IP you've generated at the end. If you don't know about that in advance, that's not going to be a particularly pleasant surprise. So talking through how this is going to be funded and where the funding is coming from can uncover these types of issues as, as you go through. Yeah, to me, I guess money sometimes for some people can be quite an uncomfortable part of the conversation, especially if it's the whole point of the research agreement, the collaboration is you know, moving science forward that's the kind of exciting thing and the money can be quite awkward I guess but yeah you know from what you've said do you try and 
head this off quite early in the negotiations because looking at the whole process, the negotiation, the agreement, how the collaboration will work from this angle does seem to have the great potential of highlighting all sorts of traps potentially that that are hiding in plain sight. They just need to be you know, investigated a bit and mm. investigating them earlier. He sort of said there could be ramifications for IP ownership. Often, do, do these things flow through a lot of elements that need to be discussed and agreed upon? Yeah, I think these do these do come out in the heads of terms discussions, hopefully, or at least our, our intention is these things come out in the heads of terms discussion, because even when you put together a project plan, you know, you put together a detailed project plan, and that is that is very much a, generally speaking, a client-led point. And just by asking some simple questions around the project plan, so, oh, okay, you've identified a six-month block here of, of running these particular tests. Where is that going to happen? Which of you is going to do it? Who's providing the supplies? You know, even going back and saying, great, you know, we've got the entire project plan. What do you think it's going to cost? How much time of this professor's time are we going to need for this? You know, how much time are we going to need in the labs? How we, are you intending on going about funding it? And, you know, sometimes the answer is, well, we're very happy to do this because we need a research project. We would, we would dedicate time for this particular professor and or a you know, PhD student to do this for the next nine months. We would like X amount of money in order to fund these activities to allow the PhD student to live on site, to, you know, to fund X, Y, Z. And you have those discussions early on and you and you sort of elicit it that way. You don't have to go down and say, right, brass tacks. Yes. Big money. Where's it coming from? You can, you know, you break that down into separate little conversations about the financial aspect and it just gets them thinking and talking about respective contributions. Which I think is really important. So, I guess it, make, it makes you know both parties think about the delivery of this because if you talk about things in quite nebulous terms, often these details, which could be significant, do get missed. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that, and that's where these things um, that's where these things are problematic. I mean, it uh, you know I kind of consider it an old adage, but the the best agreement that you draft is one that's never read. Yes, no, that makes sense. Definitely, yeah. The um, second. Your second best agreement is one that you get it out the drawer and you read it and you go, yeah, that's exactly what I expected to be there. Let's carry on with how things are going or that's exactly how I expected to resolve that issue. That's how I remember it. You know, that's the second best one. I won't go into the third and fourth ones because I don't like those so much. OK, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll part yeah, those for now. Yeah. But yeah. And you mentioned, um, you know, IP ownership. Obviously, if a lot of the value that will flow from the agreement is enshrined in the intellectual property supporting yeah. the idea giving a monopoly on the invention the innovation then yeah. understanding how that fits in ownership and the like that that can be key it's, I, is this the, this is another another area that we need to get right don't we yeah definitely definitely and i think you know we have we have concepts that we that we use regularly there are Intellectual property is, is a nice broad umbrella. It covers a you know a whole multitude of different creations, inventions, and you know, protectable rights. Um, we break it down generally into what we call background intellectual property, which is more easily described as what do you bring to the table before this agreement starts? What is your intellectual property? What are you going to apply to this task? Also, additionally, what is dependent on independent generation of, of IP that is not related to this project. That is also background IP, even though it technically 
may occur in parallel, it is not core to the project and what's being developed. And it may be used in a, in a referential way or an ancillary way, but it's not intended to be the intellectual property output of this particular project. Foreground IP is what are we generating from this particular project and what is the desired output or your capital D deliverable and what intellectual property is that going to contain? The relationship between those two concepts is really important. And this is something we again want to discuss early because working out who's bringing what to the table and knowing what the existing portfolio of IP of the parties is will give you an idea of what is going to be developed on top, what is the scope of that, and knowing what the top slice is, you know, your foreground IP, what is the what is the nugget that's going to be developed out of this? What do you then want to do with that? in light of the respective contributions of the two parties and their background intellectual property that they're bringing. It might be that the commercial company is bringing 90% of the intellectual property. It's already protected. They want assistance in developing the next 10% that just takes the invention to the next level. So then you know the output of this is only going to be that 10%. So your value proposition of what's coming out of this will be clearly defined because you know it's the top 10% and it's an improvement perhaps to an existing product. What is the university or the academic bringing? It might be experience, it might be innovation, but they're, they're only adding to the top 10% here. They're not getting access to the 90% to the that sits underneath it. I think my final point on that is that a lot of people's gut reaction is to go to, we made this together. Therefore, it's joint IP. Mm, yeah. Now, as a partner said, you'll know full well that joint IP can be a logistical nightmare. And that's even when you've only got two people involved. You've got four, five, six, seven different entities. You cannot appropriately manage your IP if it's joint IP, really, because you need consent of the other parties in order to do something with it, which can be anything, you know, change of ownership exploitation, licensing, you know, it becomes an absolute minefield. And it is possible to do this, but you have to have basically a, an entire additional strata of agreement that says, if we've got joint IP, here are the ways we're going to manage it. And you've effectively got a, a five-way agreement that you're all going to call each other and you have a voting system. And then by majority, you're going to agree what you're going to do. And it can be a nightmare. So we generally advise to stay away from joint IP what we advise is ownership in line with those who are seeking to commercially exploit and licenses back from that owner to the other party or parties on a limited basis to allow them to do what they want to do with that IP. Very commonly, it's you have ownership, you take commercial exploitation away, but the university can, after a certain date, use that IP for additional research, development and internal teaching. And, you know, once agreed and once it's non-confidential, publish around it. Tell us what you've done. Tell us what you've innovated on this. Once it's adequately protected, you have a license to do that and you can make the noise around it that gives you your status and you've been involved in this very exciting invention. So that, again, could be a difficult conversation because explaining the concepts of ownerships and license back feels like something's being taken away. And there's a big interrelationship between that and funding, because if fundamentally, if the commercial company had paid for almost everything, including the academic's time, it's an easier value exchange than somebody saying, well, it's 50-50, why, why are you owning it and I'm only getting a license back? 
But those negotiations are very important to have at an outset rather than ending up in a joint IP position and trying to deconstruct your way out of that to a practical set of solutions. I think that, yeah, that that that's my experience and view of that because you talked about living in a utopia earlier. I think that's where joint IP ownership generally belongs. I think the problem with it can be that arguably it, it sounds great, but often parties have more responsibility within what they need to do to move forward the IP than they necessarily want. And as you said, if this can kind of be more specifically agreed in licenses, then nobody loses out. It's just the lines are drawn in a more bespoke and useful way based on what the true intentions and wishes of the party are. Um, So just to kind of bring this home, really, if if some, you know, for someone listening, if they were to take three things away from you know what your experiences have been with um, preparing drafting and, and helping negotiate these research agreements what would they be so confidentiality is the one i always come back to it it can be forgotten and i always agree that relationships of trust are very important but from a from a, from a cynic's point of view as i've already explained the solicitors all are, um, having a written agreement that preserves confidentiality can be such a useful tool and it's equally useful even if nothing ever goes wrong. You know, you have it as an audit trail, you have it as proof that you've kept the discussions relating to your innovation confidential throughout and it's a very sensible safety blanket to have even if it never, as I say, comes out of the drawer. Make sure you're having those discussions. It's also critical to make sure both parties feel comfortable because quite often if one person says, I'd like to speak about this confidentiality um, agreement, I want to do this on a, on a purely mutually confidential basis, and the other party says no, the first thing you do is question their motives. And it raises the question as to why that might be. Um, flushes out, it flushes that, out issues early, I imagine. And I've seen that a few times. Some people say, well, it's a waste of paper. Well, you know full well, from a patent safety perspective, it's not a waste of paper. You know, how, how has confidentiality been preserved? Here's an agreement that preserves confidentiality. It's an answer to that particular question alone, if it's nothing else. Um, so that's that's always important. That creates your safe environment to work in and that, that creates your space for innovation. I would support that. Funding would be the next one. Yeah. And, you know, as you say, talking about money is very difficult, but, well, for some people it is, for, <laughs> for others less so. Um, but where is your funding going to come from? How is it going to be split? And how are each of you going to manage your financial contributions? Because I think that conversation also leads into the last point I'm going to make, but it also leads into a general understanding of the balance of responsibility and the value exchange that is happening. It sets out a basis for who's contributing what and therefore what conversations we need to have about the other key issues in the arrangement, including availability of staff service provision how many people are going to dedicate to it you know you you form the basis of well we would like you to help us do this at our expense and that creates a clear understanding of the relative position of the parties not in a negative way but just in a way that helps both parties understand where the other is coming from and then it's the ip of course yeah 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 it's always good to hear ip uh, (laughs) as, as an ip professional but yeah please go on yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I'd always say get to ownership last, set your framework, start with your background IP. Again, talk in your bubble, 
what do you bring to the table? What are you developing on the back of? What are each of you bringing? How is it protected? Who holds it? Who owns it? Do you need to in-license anything? You know, background IP can be in-licensed from third parties as well. You know, what do you need to make this work? And those discussions can happen around the project plan. Then, foreground IP, what are we getting out of it? We've created the environment, but what are we doing? Put the project plan together. What's the desired output? What's the capital D deliverables? And what's the IP in it? So, you know, crack on with crack on with that analysis as well. And then once you've got that, the final tricky little conversation around ownership. And that's where it really helps to have a, a sort of a specialist in place because you can discuss pitfalls of joint ownership. You can explain the lack of practicality of that. For example, needing both people to sign off on everything in relation to a patent application mm. and how the claims are drafted, how the specification is drafted. You know, in theory, if you go off and do something unilaterally without the agreement of the other party, even the way you've drafted the specification could be up for challenge yeah. because it's not been an agreed approach to to your joint IP and you don't want that throwing up issues in the prosecution phase or even later if it's challenged. Um, so have those conversations and speak to somebody who knows different ways of slicing the onion effectively to say, you know, although you're not getting ownership, you absolutely can have research exclusivity over this in a non-commercial context or you have exclusive rights of publication in respect of XYZ you will be acknowledged as an inventor, which will give you that public recognition on the patent. And we will very happily enter into a joint statement with you and the university to explain how fundamental your contribution was to this invention. You know, any number of ways you can create that value without being trapped into that joint ownership position. So always think it through. I suppose, yeah, it's like anything with these agreements. It's very much a blank canvas. It's just having the having the knowledge about how, how you paint that picture in the end that, that both people want to look at. No, that that makes sense. So the take homes really confidentiality, funding and IP. No, that was that was great. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that day. Thanks for your time today. And thank you to those that listen to the end. It's been me, Rich Wells and Dave Holt. This is the Innovation Game podcast by Potter Clarkson. You can find out more about our firm at www.potterclarkson.com. And this um, podcast and all the others in the series are available on Spotify, YouTube and SoundCloud. Thank you very much for listening.